Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land now known as Yarra. We also acknowledge the significant contributions made by other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people made to life in Yarra, and pay our respects to all elders, past, present and future. You're listening to a Short Story Club episode of the Yarra Libraries podcast. I'm Megan, I have Connor with me here today, and we're here to discuss Zadie Smith's The Embassy of Cambodia. Now, as a note, this story was expanded into a novella, which you can purchase or borrow separately, but we're going to be discussing the original, admittedly quite long, short story, which was published in The New Yorker. You're so welcome to listen to this if you haven't read the story, but we will not be holding back on spoilers, so we would recommend that you read it first. You can pause this, go to The New Yorker's website, or follow the link on our show notes, and we are going to be here when you get back. All right, so the Embassy of Cambodia, um, just in case you read it a little while ago, follows Fatou, who came to London to work for her employers in Willesden. It follows her over a few days as she cares for her employer's children, eats with her friend Andrew, and uses her employer's pass to swim in a nearby health club. In flashbacks, we learn about Fatou's life before coming to London, as well as the fact that her employers hold her passport and do not pay for her work. And you can't see this here, but I am using quotation marks around the word employers. The main question that she grapples with, though, in the story is, is what, if anything, do we owe to the people around us? Should we care about every instance of human suffering or, as Andrew tells her, only about the people closest to us because there's not enough empathy to go around? Throughout all of this, since the Embassy of Cambodia, a building that for two passes daily and where there always seems to be a game of badminton on the go. Connor, should we start really broadly here? What did you think about the story and how come? Yeah, I really liked the story. So I've never read any Zadie Smith before. I've, I've shelved it many times. I've kind of heard the excellent reviews. I've never heard a bad word about Zadie Smith. And reading the story, I can definitely see why. I found it really compelling. It was quite a long one. I think it was maybe the longest one that we've done in Short Story Club, but it almost like it just flew by. It didn't even feel like it was that long because I was super invested in what was going on. I really enjoyed it because I found it such an interesting conversation around this notion of localized suffering and empathy and whether or not we as humans, whether or not it's in our nature to actually be able to empathize with everyone and to put the most of our energy and our effort in alleviating that suffering whether or not that's spread equally across the globe. And I think we can agree that it's not. And I thought that this piece was a really interesting exploration of whether or not that's even possible and whether or not that's something we should be working towards. I think that's a really good point. That's definitely something that that not only comes up explicitly a few times in the story, but as we'll probably get to later, it's probably something that all fiction is asking us to do for to a certain extent is to consider to consider different points of views and encourage us to develop empathy with with whoever the protagonist is or with the people portrayed in a story. I think that even even characters who we might not like or agree with, I think that it's hard to read a work of fiction without developing that empathy if if the writer is doing a good job there. So I guess that really highlights my favourite thing about the story, I suppose, or the thing that really appealed to me really was Zadie Smith's portrayal of Fatu. I really love that she's given us a character who has, seems to have a really strong sense of herself. Like her situation is objectively awful, right? Her passport has been confiscated. Um, she isn't being paid. She's not treated particularly well by her employers. 
And despite that, like she doesn't feel ground down as a character. She doesn't feel like she's being defined by her circumstances here. Like she is her own person. Her mind is her own. And she's really skilled at carving out space that's hers, but like both mentally and physically in sort of taking that past and swimming in the health club, which she does to create this part that is just for her or, or doing so in the sea when she worked in at a resort before coming to England. Yeah, she, she, I think that those are the elements that really make her feel like a fully developed person rather than uh, cut out to illustrate the conditions or the possible conditions of, of slavery today, effectively. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. That's how I felt about her as well. I, she she feels like such a whole character. She's a whole person. And I think that it would have been very easy for Zadie Smith to kind of do the lazy writing route and just kind of go, here is a defeated character. Here are all of the bad circumstances that she faces, which are the circumstances that like thousands of people in our world do face. But I think that she really had the opportunity there to, to she she wouldn't have been compelling and for two I think was compelling and because she had that space that she carved out for herself and she had those moments that were were purely about her and they they weren't necessarily about the external factors that I guess are crushing her but she doesn't allow herself to be crushed she really feels like like someone that you could know and 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 someone that would exist in the world with you and I think that that in a life that we're allowed to have a peek at so you know sometimes in those really terribly done political ads where they're trying to give you a representation of like an every person a real person but they're always awful mm. and they always end up just <laughs> as like bland and not real and an almost parody of what a person should look like. Like if aliens had come to Earth and taken a look at us and gone, this is an approximate of what you, every working man, looks like, it totally could have had the potential to go that way. But because Zadie Smith is so wonderful and because she is an incredible writer, she's gone the other way and she's given us this like flesh and blood person. I think that's a really good lead into really one of the central concerns of, of the story um, because I think what, what we're talking about when we're talking about what Zadie Smith's done here is instead of creating a character that we sympathise with, she's created a character that we empathise with. If you've got a portrayal that boils someone down to the, the sum of the worst parts of their life or the sum of their situation, then we're going to sympathise with that character, absolutely. But I think empathy kind of sometimes requires something more and I think that's what novels do for us. Yeah, absolutely. I really liked the way that this was done in the story because it was done so deftly. So it's introduced to us. We're inside sort of Fatou's inner monologue and she's really ruminating on what it is about suffering that is kind of spread so unequally. I think she has, I, I remember this image of her she has this memory of these children on a beach drowned and, and they've, they've died. They've washed up drowned and it, and it was very happenstance and no one really cared or it, was, it certainly wasn't the kind of national tragedy that it perhaps might have been in somewhere like Willesden. And then she brings up this discussion with her friend Andrew who essentially has – he has quite a static standpoint of – well, really, we only care about and have empathy for the suffering that is around us. 
and we just don't as humans we don't really care about the suffering that is either geographically far away from us or um experientially quite far away from us and that to andrew only god cares about everybody humans can't I think that's a really good point because um, Andrew definitely, he believes there that we only care about the people closest to us. And Fatou feels like suffering and also the way people empathize with that suffering is distributed unequally. And they both have really good points there. I'm, I've obviously been watching way too much of A Good Place recently because the first thing I think about when I think about that discussion, well, there's a couple of things. And the first thing is the um, sort of tram car conundrum right the idea that if you have like I don't know a train or someone on the rails and there's a train coming towards them and you can pull a switch to divert it so that it uh, perhaps kills one person and not five other people and then you make changes to the situation what if the person is a friend what if the person is a family member do you still flip the switch is it morally most right to prevent the the most suffering but it sort of basically boils down to that it's quite human for us to to perhaps care more about the people closest to us. It's, it would be perhaps quite quite strange to not care more about, say, your family than someone who isn't your family. So like that we may pay unequal attention to suffering is perhaps very human, but then when that's extrapolated on a global basis, when you have um, some people who have more resources to prevent or stave off suffering, when you have a media that focuses more on some suffering than other suffering and therefore makes some feel feel larger than they necessarily are on a global scale, then that can be sort of a, a, a bigger problem. On a more sort of micro level, though, I think it's a really interesting discussion to have in a novella or in a novel. I think we probably both agree here that novels in and of themselves are things that it's been recorded as increasing people's ability to empathise, really, because it's giving you insight into someone else's, into someone else's world and how they move through it. So Zadie Smith is essentially having an argument on whether you can empathize with others or how much you should do so while writing a story that she surely knows is helping us to empathize with Fatou. Um, So it's quite kind of a meta conversation about empathy there and about suffering. Yeah, that's exactly how I felt about it as well. And for me, this was my favorite part. Reading fiction not only enables us to travel to other places and to other times, but it also is incredible because it gives us this insight into other people's minds and their worlds. And I mean, until we until we master like telepathy, that is the closest that we're ever going to get to being inside someone else's mind, which I think is just the most phenomenal sensation. It's obviously why I'm such a voracious reader. But I do think that what Zadie Smith does here and what fiction does is that she is increasing our capacity for empathy. I think you're right. Exactly what she's doing, even in having this kind of like discussion within the story about whether or not that's even possible, that's exactly what she's doing. And I know personally that in terms of getting people to empathize with a particular situation or a particular group of people, it is so, so, so much easier to get that to happen, to kind of like to have that conversation with people if they have even one thing in common with the person that you're trying to get them to empathize with. The kind of the key tenet of like campaigning or having a persuasive conversation 
is find one point of similarity. And if you've got just one point, if you've got one thing in common, something that you have a shared experience of, then it, it is so much easier to, to scaffold from that and to, and to have that conversation. And I think that we don't all actually always get that opportunity to, to meet people who are different from us, who look different from us, who have different life experiences, whether or not that's about where you live and where you're actually able to travel to. I grew up in a very white town, like 99% white. It might be a little bit better now, but then moving to Melbourne, where it's an incredible multicultural city, it completely broadened my mind. And that was purely by being immersed in a place that is full of people who are different from me. And I think that growing up reading fiction, my mind was already wired to have that capacity to not see into other people's inner lives because, I mean, we can't do that. And the story, I think, talks about that. But just to just to know that there is an inner life, which I think is invaluable. I think when we talk about sort of fiction having an impact on perhaps like our emotional and our moral landscape, one of the things I think about is a story called Among Others by Joe Walton. And it's completely different to, to this this story, but in the sense of the emotional development of, of empathy or developing one's inner landscape through fiction. The main character in that story reads a lot of science fiction and fantasy in the 80s. Like I think it's set in, I believe it's set in the 80s in Wales actually. And it's a coming of age story, but it's a coming of age story through books in a really explicit way. And you can see the character making those connections between what she thinks of a situation, like based on what she's read previously. And I just, I kind of love that because it was such an explicit example of how, of how what we read can actually shape what we think and how we approach a situation in the same way that who we know personally can do that. One of the things that I think uh, makes this story so effective is that we've just had like quite a perhaps a serious discussion about like empathy and morality and things like that. But this story, despite having a lot of objectively terrible things happen in it, it doesn't feel heavy or it didn't weigh me down reading it. Um, there seemed to be an aspect, not of, not of whimsy, but maybe lightness. And that was partly through the the tone, partly through Fatou as a character and um, partly through the sort of structure and the framing. And there are a few sort of structural or framing things about this story that are very specific. Um, one of that is that every time is the Embassy of Cambodia. So the Embassy of Cambodia is a building in Williston that Fatou passes often. And it's described like in part of the structure as quite like an unexpected element in the landscape of Williston. And another thing is that every time she passes by, there's a game of badminton being played. And badminton itself, I don't know about you, but something about it strikes me as sort of like a a whimsical sport or a quirky sort of sport. It's not someone sort of bouncing a a basketball or or kicking a football or something. It's it's kind of like a a little bit quirky, not a little bit Wes Anderson-ish, but it's got kind of that (laughs) sort of vibe to it. So it's quite an an interesting sport to be being played and to be like framing this um, story. What were the sort of structural elements that really struck you? Yeah, so the badminton struck me quite a bit as well, but it struck me in the sense that I had no clue what it was meant to symbolise, which I find hilarious because I'm usually pretty good at deconstructing symbols in stories. It's a little bit 
part of my job and my whole degree that I did. And I just read this and I, I loved, there was so much that I got out of it. But then I got to the badminton and I was like, I don't get it. But the... <laughs> the- <laughs> Um, if, if it helps at all, I'm pretty sure that one of my notes for this was what's with the badminton <laughs> question mark going into the discussion the, um, with the uh, meetings of the Short Story Club that we did on, on this story. So thankfully coming out of it, I have a little more to think about than what is with the badminton. Yeah, right. <laughs> like I, I think that is one of the joys of the sessions that we do with the public, with our participants, because they just have so much more to to give. I mean, you and I have read the story and discussed it and we were both like, what's with the badminton? But when when I discussed it with um with the uh, session that I sort of facilitated, people were amazing and they had the most incredible insights. And I think the one that stuck with me the most, because it really made sense to me, even though I didn't come up with it, so I have shamelessly stolen it for this podcast, is the idea of the badminton being played behind this very, very tall wall and you can only really see the shuttlecock um, going back and forth over this wall. So the idea of that image being a metaphor for people's inner lives, which is a big theme of the story and that you can really only see what's going on on top of the wall. You can only see the shuttlecock. You can only see what people are presenting you with, but there is so much more going on behind that wall that you have no access to. And this incredible woman in my morning session said that and I was just floored because it is genius and I don't know if that was the intention but that is totally what I'm taking from it. Um, I, I really love that because my group came up with some really interesting insights as well and it was a, a totally different one to, to that which also makes a lot of sense. This story is broken into a number of segments and each of them starts with zero sort of dash and then a number, zero dash one, zero dash two, et cetera. And when I was reading it, I just read those as sort of like chapter headings, really like chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, et cetera. But a few of the people in in the meeting that I was in, and I feel kind of maybe silly for not noticing this now, but mentioned that they felt like this was keeping score, like this was the badminton game being played and in each chapter life was sort of hitting the badminton like the is it a shuttlecock I'm just going to sound like an idiot here but um presenting something or like serving something towards Fatu and it was quite a sort of sad interpretation because it was basically saying that Fatu was constantly losing that life was constantly throwing situations at her that were playing the world perhaps and she was 0-15 you know (laughs) so which is is quite a depressing take on it but like also a, a legitimate one I did quite enjoy that idea though of the badminton like the little bit that you can see above the wall is all you get to see of people's lives generally but there is everything else going on behind the wall or under the surface and that that's important to recognize that's certainly a bleak take on the story but I think that perhaps the story is a bleak one anyway or is it because my group also had this incredible discussion around whether or not this was actually a hopeful story or not. And they were very, very split. And I'm still not super sure where I land on this because it is so ambiguous and interesting. So the way with the story ending with Fatou being fired, but then she demands her passport back and she, she does get it slid under the door. And people were really split about whether or not this was a sad ending or whether this was hopeful, whether Fatou was going to step out into the world and things were going to get better for her, or were things only going to get worse? Was this an inevitable slide into poverty? So I don't really know where I stand on that. Where do you stand? 
I honestly don't know where I stand on it either, which is not a very good answer to have for you there. But I guess all I can say is that I was left with a hopeful feeling when I finished it and whether that was intentional, that was just what I took away from it and whether that was tone rather than circumstance. But I mean, it is a very ambiguous ending. We don't know what's going to happen to Fatu. She has her passport. She doesn't have a job. Andrew is going to let her stay at his place and see if he can get her her job that way. I think we can assume that she's in the country illegally, that she maybe won't be able to apply for things like for jobs over the table, that she might be deported even if if she's discovered to be in the country. So that all sounds really bleak and really like a pretty awful situation to be in. The the situation is objectively a bad one. Uh, But at the same time, Fatou, in a sense, has been in this situation that was already awful, that really restricted her agency it, she talks about how she's allowed to leave the house, but she doesn't really need to because it's not as if she has any money or anywhere to go, but she could if she needed to um, or if she wanted to. But I think that while she's saying that, that's obviously not a great situation to be in, to not be being paid for your work, to not have access to your passport in, and to be treated quite poorly by her, again, quotation marks, employers, it's not a great situation. I can't help but feeling that no matter how um, how bleak the situation looks, there is a feeling of, of hope in that ambiguity at the end, right? Because we know the situation she was coming from, that situation was not great. She didn't have a lot of agency over her day-to-day life and I can't help but feel that now she has more, that now she, she someone who wasn't letting herself be defined by her situation, is now at least out of that situation. She's she's not in that one and whatever comes next, I, I guess I hope that it's going to be something good. I hope that she's going to be able to turn the badminton game around in some way. Yeah, I see now you've turned me around on that because now I feel hopeful about it as well. I'm very changeable. But <laughs> I think I think you're right. No, I think you're right. I, th- I think she regains something. I think whether that's the regaining of her passport, which is – phenomenal for her to have again. I mean, it, it truly is slavery when, you're, when your passport is withheld like that. I mean, I, I certainly know that this happens um, to a lot of farm workers here in Australia, just to sort of like, like this stuff happens in our country as well. But I think whether that is regaining her passport or whether it is her regaining her agency, and I think they're kind of inextricably linked, I would like to think that it's that it's a hopeful end. And one of the things that really struck me from the session that I hosted, the morning session, was that one of our participants mentioned that for a migrant's story, anything going forward is always hopeful because everything that you have come from, because a lot of the time migrants are fleeing worse circumstances in in their home countries or their transition countries and that anything going forward is hopeful because you are moving forward you are creating a life for yourself because you have that agency because you have you have taken that step to escape your circumstances and that everything you're doing is is to build that better life for yourself and i thought that that was a really beautiful sentiment. And I think it is the hopeful way of looking at it. I think it, we could very easily be weighed down by perhaps the reality of the circumstances and all of the terrible things that could happen if she is in the country illegally. She really has no legal recourse. She has a bit of a support network, which I think makes the difference. But yeah, I'm going to choose to be hopeful about it. 
Well, I'm really glad to hear that. I think that Zadie Smith has uh, left it open for there to be be room for hope. I don't think we can call it a happy ending. I think that's way too definite, and I think that we're not left with that. But I, I do, I do feel like in that moment, Fatu could be feeling hopeful. Uh, can I ask what else you've been reading recently? Yes, absolutely. I have been reading more and it's been making me extremely happy, as happy as one can be in Melbourne's second lockdown. Having said that, though, I just read a really, really sad book. It was it was absolutely wonderful and fulfilling and it gave me a lot of thoughts, but it also gave me a lot of really sad feelings. So I've been reading, I've just finished last night, it's called The Great Believers by Rebecca Mackay. And it is this really devastating novel that it's a dual perspective and half of that perspective is set in Chicago in the 80s, right at the height of the AIDS crisis. And it follows this young gay man and his sort of group of friends. And it's essentially just about the way that AIDS impacts all of them and their community. And as you can imagine, it was absolutely devastating because that's a pretty sad story to tell. But it was also, I guess, kind of like the Zadie Smith story. It was also really uplifting in a way. It really taught me a lot about the activism that was going on at the time and the strength of the bonds of community when you are essentially suffering a, a plague. It was a plague that affected a really specific community. So it, it made me cry, but it also... It also really um, made me appreciative for the suffering and the work that a lot of queer elders did during that time that I don't think we talk about enough. So yes, that's what I've been reading that I really love, but I really needed something to uplift me a little more after that because it was pretty heavy. And so I went super the opposite direction and I binged the entire newest season of The Great British Sewing Bee, which is about <laughs> as opposite as you can get. And it is wholesome and it is lovely and it is people making their own clothes and I could not recommend it more. <laughs> that sounds very heartwarming. And I'm going to say maybe like your ability to read a book that was not happy chocolate bar of book is evidence that, that you are feeling more hopeful overall, perhaps, because I, I certainly know that when I was feeling particularly down about the lockdown, that was when I couldn't really handle anything other than like a happy marshmallow of a book. That was all I could really cope with at the time. If it was a happy marshmallow of a book in a series, so I kind of had an idea of how it would start and finish and I didn't have to think about it too much, that was even better. Um, so I would say that hopefully your ability to um, to read something that, that was in itself kind of bleak at times means that you're feeling better overall. So thumbs up for that. Speaking of happy marshmallows of a book, I recently reread Red, White and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston because oh, uh, she spoke. so much. Uh, yeah, I, I also, I had almost forgotten how much I loved it. I had listened to a colleague who said, uh, who mentioned another book, Boyfriend Material, I believe, and said that it was better than Red, White and Royal Blue. And I thought, oh, well, I'm going to have to read this then. And then I read it and I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, I quite enjoyed that. Maybe it is better than Red, White and Royal Blue. And then I reread Red, White and Royal Blue and it is definitely not. That is the best. Um, <laughs> and Casey McQuiston was really lovely at the um, Melbourne Writers Festival recently. So if you are looking for something happy and uplifting, I would once again recommend that book. But I've also been reading some other things. Like I know this is a really um, unexpected 
recommendation. No one has ever said that Girl, Woman, Other is a good book. It's not as if it won the Booker. You know, it's not as if it's, you know, been celebrated globally and is, you know, maxed out on the holds list in Cloud Library at the moment and or anything like that. But um, I would really highly recommend Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo. It's probably the best thing I've read this year, actually, and I know that's a really strong statement. But uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, it follows a series of interconnected uh, Black British women through the present day as well as giving you flashbacks into their earlier life and um, all of them are currently attending a play in London or like the launch of a play and through each chapter you kind of you get a different point of view and you get more insight into not only how they're connected to each other but how like it's it gives you this um this really nuanced understanding of how unreliable their own narration is because you see them through other people's lives for brief periods as they come in and out of other people's stories, um, you kind of get this idea of how shaded our perspectives of ourselves are and of each other as well. And I just think it was it was bloody brilliant and everyone should read it. And, yeah, I know it's not an unknown recommendation, but, you know, thumbs up. And just because I finished it this morning and I can't get enough about talking about what I've been reading, uh, I'd also really recommend The Adversary by Ronnie Scott. So that was a more recent release just in the last few months. And it's about a young man in Melbourne who is kind of floating for eight weeks in the summer between, between years at uni and his housemate. Dan, who he's been close friends with for a long time, is kind of moving in a different trajectory to him now. So his friend has graduated, his friend's working full time, his friend has a partner. And so the protagonist is feeling a little bit unmoored and and maybe like aimless in his life in comparison. And uh, But the reason that I would recommend it is because, well, like, it's set in summer. There's lots of sunshine. We could really use a bit of that right now. It's it's There are people that are staying inside because they want to, not because they have to, which is, again, like really dramatic escapism right now. <laughs> and the stakes are the stakes are sort of friendship and working out what you want to do with your life and, and maybe not recognizing yourself in a relationship and all these sorts of things. But it's essentially eight weeks of sort of meandering. And, and I could really, I really miss meandering. You know, it was, it was actually pretty great. Like the stakes are kind of, kind of low in comparison to to a lot of what's going on at the moment and and I really love that it, it was set sort of in, in Richmond and Fitzroy and Brunswick and yeah and sort of Abbotsford and things and Yarra Libraries actually gets a mention so like good job Ronnie thank you for the plug that has guaranteed I will like it. It felt escapist in a way that I'm not sure it would always feel escapist but it does particularly now if you're in Melbourne and you're in lockdown reading about people wandering around our city and just living their lives as normal is is actually really lovely right now at least I'm finding it that way so I guess I'd recommend that as well eight weeks of meandering is such an incredible way to describe a novel like I'm I'm into (laughs) it for all of those other reasons but I would read it solely based on that sentence uh well thank you um to be fair like a lot of his um kind of meandering is more like mental meandering while he's in his house because he doesn't see really the point of going out um (laughs) so there's that as well um, but there is also like that used to be <laughs> and now all I want to do is leave my house I I, I feel you I, I've often been like oh wow it'd be really great to have like just more time inside and do a bit of reading and and things like that and now of course um contrarily the moment that I can do that all <laughs> I want to do is leave the house and just keep walking more than 5k's away um but hopefully all of us get the chance to do that soon. And until then, um, you could read The Adversary by Ronnie Scott. 
if you enjoyed our discussion about Zadie Smith's story, if you enjoyed our discussions about short stories more generally, there are a couple of things you're able to check out. You can check out the other podcasts in uh, the Short Story Club. You can find them in your podcast app where you might be listening to this, or you can also find them on SoundCloud. There's a whole playlist of just the Short Story Club episodes if you'd like to listen to any of them. There's five before this one. And the other thing, of course, is if you don't just want to listen to us talk about it, I mean, we honestly don't always just want to listen to us talk about it, um, come along to one of our meetings of the Short Story Club. So we meet on a fortnightly basis. There's uh, Right now we're meeting on a fortnightly basis. There's a daytime session and an evening session, depending on which suits you. And basically we'll just make sure that you have the information about a short story that's available online. Make sure you read that before the meeting and then come along and we'll do a bit of a discussion about it. So it's as, as we've mentioned, some of the most interesting things have been hearing other people's perspectives. That's what we really love. So please come along and be one of those perspectives. And finally, I guess, just remember that there is an absolute ton that is going on at the moment. So you can give us a call, you can shoot us an email, you can access our ebook collections, our audiobook collections. We have online story times going on. We have the Baby Time podcast. We have probably as many author talks and digital coaching sessions and cultural forums and um, sessions on philosophy and book discussions that like pretty much everything that we usually do we are doing at the moment online so please come and join us if you feel the need and let us know if there's any way we can help Connie do you have anything else to add before we bow up? I don't think so no you've left us on a very lovely note there all right. Well, um, happy reading, everyone. We'll be back in a few weeks with the next episode of the Short Story Club. But do feel free to tune in in the meantime. We've got some great author talk recordings coming up. We'll have some more top fives of some of our children's resources. And we look forward to, I guess, seeing you online. Bye. Bye.